Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Hear now God's Word. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Today we continue to unpack the Apostle Paul's great prayer for the Christians at Ephesus. And since this is a divinely inspired prayer, we can rest assured that it is also a prayer for us. The Holy Spirit had us in mind as well, and because it certainly reveals God's will for His people. This morning we will focus on verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, and then he's going to, to continue, and we'll have a few words to say about the latter part, but I want to focus on being rooted and grounded in love. You'll recall the parable that Jesus gave in the sower and the seed, and he said this, But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and imitates, uh, and, excuse me, and who immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while, for when tribulation or persecution arises, Because of the word, he immediately stumbles. It's never enough simply to hear the word, to receive the word. It also has to take root. It also must bear fruit or it's fallen short of its intended purpose. It seems that there are many who bear the name of Christ, that they've been baptized, they have publicly Uh, made vows or joined the church. There's even an outward conformity in their lives in many respects to the Christian faith. But the roots are shallow. And the foundation is weak. It doesn't take much to overthrow their faith. Christ is more of a visitor than a resident in their hearts. He kind of comes and goes. But Paul wants more than that for those who profess faith in Christ, and I want more than that for you. The way we know that Christ is dwelling in our hearts, that He is taking up residence, the way we know Christ is in our hearts by faith is that we do become rooted and grounded in love. Now, I know the word love is... um, Often there's attached to that a great deal of sentiment, and I think that's appropriate. Love is such a powerful, encompassing concept. And we don't want to in any way diminish or leave off the sentimental dimensions, but it's bigger than sentiment. It's more than a warm feeling. It, it has to do with sacrifice and 
service has to do with being thoughtful, of the, has to do with the truth. Love is always concerned about truth. Love is concerned about obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Love encompasses our entire life, and so therefore we're going to see that love is critical to the right kind of Christian life. It's not just one something else in the list. It is actually the foundation, it is actually the root that is critical to everything else we do. And so the way we know that Christ is dwelling in our hearts is that we become rooted and grounded in love, and that will be obvious. 1 John 3, 10 and 11, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest, that is, obvious. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. For this is the message you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. In other words, love should be the dominant and the prominent thing in our lives. What does he believe? Well, I'm not sure, but I know he loves people. What are her political views? I don't know, but she's loving. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't know what people believe or what their political views are or what they think about this, that, or the other, but the one thing that everyone ought to know about you and me, because Christ is in us, is the one thing that exudes uh, and overflows to everyone in every place is that we are full of the love of God. Now, the kind of love we're talking about originates with God, and Paul is praying that this love will be both the root and the ground for us. We are given these two metaphors to demonstrate the importance of this. First, love is the soil in which our Christian life grows and matures. Love is the fruit of such maturity. Love nourishes. Love causes growth in the faith. The Bible teaches us that it is love, not knowledge, not knowledge, that makes us the strongest Christians. And that's not in any way disparaging knowledge. Knowledge is very important. Paul's already prayed that we would be filled with our, the knowledge of God. But in comparison, if, if, if we have to have one of the other, or maybe a better way of putting it is which one comes ahead of the other in terms of importance and priority, clearly, hands down, it's love. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies or builds up. And if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. It's not what you know. It's whether you're loved by God. And that will show in your love. Now this is, again, not anti-knowledge, but rather a matter of priorities and perspective. When we try to put knowledge in the place of love, making knowledge the primary thing, then we have missed the point of knowledge. Knowledge has to be 
for the sake of love. Whatever we know about God should always lead us to love, should nourish that love. Those relationships, it must produce love or else it is an incomplete knowledge. We've missed the point. Knowledge without love is superficial. It has no root. Genuine Christian knowledge is the knowledge of a person. And that leads to love because God is love. If the knowledge we have, including our doctrinal knowledge, does not lead us to a greater and deeper love for God and our neighbors, then it is a false knowledge. Because true knowledge always leads us to love. Some of us are good, relatively speaking, hard-working Christians. As Paul writes in Romans 5, 5, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. But sometimes, tell me if this is true for you, sometimes it's not love that motivates us even in our church work. Sometimes we're motivated by our desire to maintain and advance our own reputations. Or perhaps our own importance. We want to be seen a certain way by the public. We want to be seen as decent and respectable people. He's a leader in the community. And in and of itself, those are not particular problems, but when that replaces the motive of love, love for God and love for our neighbors, you see, those who are rooted in that, rooted in that kind of love are driven by higher motives. They are self-sacrificing and generous even when, especially when, no one's watching but God. This is not service and sacrifice if, but service and sacrifice in spite of. Just look at the Apostle Paul himself, a man who was a tireless evangelist who faced every kind of difficulty imaginable in order to bring the good news to people who desperately needed it and often didn't want it. Why did he do this? 2 Corinthians 5, 12-14 For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us. Paul said, we're not here for ourselves. We're here because Christ loved us so much we can't do anything else but be here to serve and to give ourselves to you. When he looked at the corruption of the cultures around him and the broken and messed up people and the broken and messed up families of his day, he did not place himself above it all. Paul remembered that it was grace and grace alone, a grace that was rooted in love that rescued him from his lost condition, and as a result, he looked at the world with very different eyes 
And from a heart filled with love and compassion, He moved toward them, not away from them. He didn't withdraw and say, I don't want to be near those people. Again, like Jesus, who do we see Jesus associating with? The marginalized, the disreputable sinners. You see, there is no ultimate value in your work, in your education, in your bank account, in your dreams, in your reputation, in your possessions, none of it, unless it is rooted and grounded in love. And remember, love's not just that sentimental feeling. It is way more than that. I appeal to the very words of the Apostle Paul. Now please don't let these words go by too fast. Let them take root in the soil of love. 1 Corinthians 13.1 You've heard the passage many times. Frequently quoted at weddings. A good passage to quote at weddings. A good passage to quote any time which is what I'm about to do. Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. So do you have this? If you're missing the main ingredient, your biscuits aren't going to rise. Judgment Day is going to be full of surprises. Some things and some people who appear to be very great right now will turn out to be nothing. And some things and people who appear to be nothing right now will turn out and appear to be great. Jesus didn't appear to be much to a lot of people while he walked on the earth, but when God sheds his light on it all, it's going to look quite different. You remember this story from Jesus, Mark 12. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and saw how the people how the people put their money in the treasury. And many who were rich put in much. So he called the, his disciples to himself and he said to them, "Assuredly or truly I say to you that this poor excuse me back up. Then one of the widows came and threw in two mites, which make a quadrant. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance. She, out of her poverty, put in all that she had. Her whole livelihood. What made her two little mites so great? 
her love, her sacrifice that was added to it. It surpassed even that of the large donors. Love compels us to give even when we think we can't afford to give. I know Christians who don't tithe even though they've pledged to do so because they can't afford to. At least that's what they say. And I suggest they can't afford not to. Failure to give, you see, is not due to a lack of money. Failure to give is due to a lack of love. If you love God, Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. That's what love does. Love is sacrifice. Love does what it's supposed to do when it's supposed to do it, even when it's hard, especially when it's hard. Was it hard for the widow to give the two mites? How hard? Jesus gives us another example of this kind of love. It's a longer passage here, but I think it's worth taking the time with. Luke 7, 36-50. Then one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, asked Jesus to come eat with him. And he went to the Pharisee's house and sat down to eat. And behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of fragrant oil and stood at his feet behind him, weeping. And she began to wash his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head. And she kissed his feet and anointed them with fragrant oil. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. But you imagine how alarming this is? Simon's sitting there thinking this in his head. And now Jesus is going to comment on his thoughts. So he said, Teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing which to, with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And he said to him, You have rightly judged. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered into your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman has not ceased to kiss my feet since the time I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil. This woman has anointed my feet with fragrant oil. Therefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who sat at the table with him began to say to themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The second metaphor that Paul uses is that of a foundation, that of being grounded in love. Before we can safely build anything, attention has to be paid to the foundation. 
If we are careless in this step, then it doesn't matter what else we do after that, it will be at risk. Great buildings have great foundations. They are well grounded. In our text in Ephesians 3, Paul is going now to go on to say, the reason for our need to be rooted and grounded in love is so that, quote, we may be able to comprehend, that is to take in with all the saints, what is the width, length, and depth, and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Well, if we're going to build a building that can contain all the fullness of God, we will definitely need a good grounding, a good foundation. So how are we to lay such a foundation? Remember, everything, every relationship is to be grounded in love. This is to be our motive for it all. It begins first with our relationship with God. Here we are tempted, let me say this a little differently. I found my preparation for this sermon troubling. Troubling to me. Because what I'm about to say describes me. And I'm ashamed of it after all these years of being a Christian and being a pastor to say that this is uh, too often how I think about God. Theoretically. Abstractly. Intellectually. Sometimes I argue about Him, about the existence of God. Sometimes I question Him. How can I do all of that but never get around to loving Him? And if I can't love Him, how can I ever be filled with the fullness of God? God's over here. He's this object. He's something I'm studying and talking about and thinking about and explaining But if it never comes home, if he's never my father, then I've missed it. It's shallow. It's shaky. The first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, how easy that is to say. We've heard it so many times. But if we pause for even a moment and meditate on what that says, the first, first in priority, the greatest, the biggest, the most important of all the commandments is to love the Lord our God. How? With all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. You see, God is not simply to be believed in. We are to love God, which means it calls for a personal relationship with Him. God is not just the force. He's not just the uncaused cause. 
And since God is love, if we have a right relationship with Him, it will be one that is rooted and grounded in love. He is our Father. We are His child. He loves us. We love Him. In fact, we love Him because He first loved us. Second, not only is this love that's grounded in, in, in our, not only is this a, uh, not only is love the ground or the foundation and this love is manifest toward God, but it's also second important that we understand it means we love one another. The second great summary commandment is to love our neighbors. The scriptures call us to fervently love the brethren, not casually, not incidentally, not when it's convenient. But the demand for a fervent love means sometimes I need to put my phone down and talk to people and help them and consider them and compliment them and embrace them. And to share their burdens and to laugh with them and to have them over and to eat with them and to pray with them and to pray for them. Real people, the ones that are hard to love. Not only are we called to love the brethren and our neighbors. The Bible makes it really hard. We're called to love our enemies. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, You have heard, it, heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. We see this a lot of times with kids, but grown-ups do it. They just learn to do it a lot more subtly. I'm hanging out with my friends. I want to be with my friends. I want to do everything with my friends. I don't want to be with those other people. Sometimes it goes so far as that we become bullies or we put other people down or we sit in judgment of other people. We don't let them into the circle because this is our circle, not your circle. Is that how Jesus acted? Aren't you glad He let you in His circle? He didn't just let you in. He went and got you and brought you in. You see the difference? It's not just that you came and happened to sit down at His table and He didn't make you leave. He saw you sitting over there in the corner by yourself and He went and got you. Or He went and sat down with you. He showed you mercy. He showed you love. And that's what Jesus has called us to do. In fact, he says that's the very foundation. Many people 
love that people love them, and that's pretty easy. But we love because we're loved. That's why we love our friends. They love us. It's easy. But Jesus is pushing us. Jesus is pushing us to be like Him. That's how we know that He dwells in our hearts. He cultivates the soil of our hearts to be full of rich, loamy love. Or to use our other metaphor, He is the sure foundation of love upon which everything else is built. It is the only way you will ever comprehend the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Now finally, if we are truly grounded in love, that is if we have a solid foundation, that is going to result in stability. It's easy for our love to shift from one day to the next due to a poor foundation But God's love is never changing. It is constant. We have just read the words of Jesus in Matthew 5. Therefore, you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. uh, The word perfect can also be translated mature or full grown. He calls for a mature, stable kind of love. It's steady. It's fixed. This rooted and grounded love does not depend on the weather or the circumstances. Jesus warned of this in Matthew 7, Therefore, whoever hears these words of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house upon a rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was the fall. That means our love for God, this well-grounded love, this foundation of love doesn't waver when things aren't going well. Our love for other people doesn't shift because they failed us. Our faith is rooted and grounded in love. Again, Paul's description of love in 1 Corinthians 13. Love suffers long and is kind. Is not provoked. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures All things, love never fails. The world changes, circumstances change, people change, but a faith that is rooted and grounded in love never changes because only only love can stand up to these storms. It only grows in its capacity to see God in all of those changes. You see, as our love grows, as we see God at work in everything, in every relationship, in every circumstance, we see that He is working all things together for good. That even in that hard thing, maybe especially in that hard thing, it comprehends with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height 
to know the love of Christ. You know, when he, in Philippians where Paul talks about be anxious for nothing but in every, with thanksgiving and everything with prayer and supplication. Let your request be, na- known, be made known to God and the peace of God which passes understanding. See, there's a peace that passes understanding, but now there's a love that passes knowledge. Understanding and knowledge are good things to have, but I don't know about you. Actually, I do. When I look at most things, I don't have knowledge and understanding. I don't know what the heck's going on. I don't know why it's going on. I don't understand it. But because I know the one who does understand it, and because I know he loves me, and that I love him, I trust him. And so I can have peace in situations that I don't understand, and I can have love that goes past all the stuff I don't know. So that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's the goal Paul prays for, and that should be our goal. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, as your children, we appeal to you to strengthen us in the inner man according to your riches and glory, so that Christ would truly dwell in our hearts through faith. Our love is often shallow and shaky, but we pray that you would work in us and cause us to be rooted and grounded in love, love toward you, toward our neighbors, and even toward our enemies. Enlarge our roots and our foundations so that we might indeed be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge so that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, commenting on this passage, said this, and I think this is a good preparation for us as we come to the table. Again, love is the only true motive for work and activity in the Christian life. Why do we call ourselves Christians? Why do we partake of bread and wine at the Lord's Supper? Why do we believe that Christ died for our sins on the cross? The reason for it all is that we know that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Love is God's own motive. Why should the eternal, absolute, holy God trouble at all about this world that rebelled against Him and reduced His paradise to a state of chaos? Why did He not destroy it all and consign it there and then to perdition? It was because of his eternal, self-generating love. This is the motivation in the heart of God. And as you read the story of the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing stands out more prominently in all the Gospels than this very same fact. He looked at the crowd, we are told, and he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. How frequently is the word compassion used in connection with him? He had compassion on the multitude. His deeds of kindness, his miracles, his relieving of the sick and the suffering was all because of his 
great heart of love. That gave him the energy and provided the motive also. It was the power that led him on. And in the Christian life, we are to be like him. We are to follow in his steps. We are to be reproductions of him. Men and women in the world, as they look at us, should see him. This, therefore, must be the compelling motive in our Christian life in every respect, in every aspect of it. Amen. O Christ, all your ways of mercy tend us and culminate in our delight. You did weep, sorrow, and suffer that we might rejoice. For our joy, you have sent the Comforter, multiplied your promises, removed all our sins, shown us our future happiness, given us a living fountain. You are preparing joy for us and us for joy. We pray for joy, we wait for joy, we long for joy. Give us more than we can hold, desire, or think of. If we weep at night, give us joy in the morning. Let us rest in the thought of your love, your pardon for sin, our title to heaven, and our future sinless state. O Lord, continue to change our way of thinking. May your thoughts be our thoughts. May we see the way you see, and may the world see us as your imitators. Fill us with joy today and cause us to rejoice in and for all things that we might be encouraged and strengthened to serve you with gladness. Grant a blessing upon our fellowship and our meal, upon our rest today. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts, blameless in holiness before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of his saints. Amen.